Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about the power of questions. I've often puzzled why there's such a taboo in this society about asking questions. People will pre pretend to know something even when they don't. But thoughtful questions can help us improve ourselves as human beings and improve our organizations. If we want to have real equity, diversity, and inclusion in our organizations, we must be willing to ask questions to truly understand one another. You're about to meet Brian Lassiter, President and CEO of Performance Excellence Network of Minnesota. This network is part of an overall larger effort dedicated to helping people and organizations improve what they do and get better results through a great set of questions. Let's meet Brian. Hello, everybody. I've been chatting up front with Brian Lassiter. I am so excited to have him here. He is CEO, President of the Performance Excellent Network in Minnesota. So Brian, before I go any further, why don't you tell, me, tell people a little bit about what that is? You bet. And I'll also say your listeners are probably from all over the country, maybe all over the world. I don't know. Uh, but it's are. a beautiful, beautiful day in Minnesota. It, we're, we're in June right now, so I'm happy to report it's 70. If we did this interview in January, it might be 70 below. I don't know. But, but I am so pleased to be part of uh, today's interview and to talk with you, Gene. Uh, the Performance Excellence Network is a nonprofit uh, created in 1987. It was actually incubated in the state of Minnesota as a, as a state agency with the original name of Minnesota Council for Quality. Ah. Yeah. And this is when um, it was the governor and the legislator created us as an entity. This is when quality was first becoming a thing. And uh, manufacturers and service businesses didn't know how to do it. They didn't know the tools and the principles. And so our mission was really to help to teach manufacturers how to improve, how to improve quality and productivity and competitiveness. Uh, we've broadened our reach in the last 35 years. We now serve all types of organizations from uh, certainly businesses still, but healthcare organizations, school districts and higher ed institutions, uh, nonprofit uh, agencies, governmental agencies. So we serve about 200 organizations in a three-state region, Minnesota and North and South Dakota, and are part of a national network of organizations that use Baldridge, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that too, yes. as a, frame, a framework for driving improvement and excellence within the enterprise. Okay, improvement and excellence in organizations. I'm all about that. So let's start with you. I tell us a bit about your background. Uh, you know, this is I focus on ro racial and social justice, uh, which uh, obviously implies organizational settings. So, did you grow up in a homogenous community? How did you get from where you are to here? Yeah, well, I'll give you the shorter story because we don't have all day for the longer one. I actually grew up in Missouri. Uh, suburb of Kansas City area. Yep. Okay. And it was a, it was a pretty homogenous uh, community. Uh, looking back, I, I don't have the numbers. It probably was 90 plus percent white, 80, 90 percent white, uh, middle class neighborhood within uh, a suburb of Kansas City. So in my earlier, my youth, I didn't have much exposure to racial diversity. Um, there were a few 
um, racially diverse kids in my school, but not very many. Um, as I as I age, though, and as I've wandered through life, I've been exposed much more to not just racial diversity, but diversity broadly defined. Um, went to college in St. Louis in a much more diverse camp, college setting and campus, um, which exposed me to you know more racially diverse communities. Moved to Minnesota, gosh, in 1994 now, so it's been quite a while, which is not the most racially diverse um, community, although it's changed considerably in the almost 30 years I've been here. Uh, but my job, it's actually my career that's that's really opened my eyes to uh, diversity, inclusion, social injustice. Um, as I mentioned, we work with about 200 organizations and communities around the, the region, from the Fortune 500 big businesses to small rural school districts and critical access hospitals and um, nonprofits with all sorts of different uh, social missions. And so it's, it's through that work, really, that I'm seeing a lot more and appreciating a lot more diversity within all of our communities and, and the inequities that are built into the systems. Inequities that are built into the system. How did you get interested in performance excellence, organizational excellence? You know, I, it wasn't by design, um, although I think genetically I'm kind of a systems thinker and um, I'm kind of prone to how things work or don't work and always trying to find ways to improve things. It's just who I am, I guess, in my genetics. And so that that was always with me. But um, my career, real, real briefly, went from college into a bank in St. Louis in the operation side of a bank, and then to um, consulting, Pricewaterhouse, on the strategy consulting side. So I was beginning to see how things work in an operational setting, then in a strategic sense through my, my work at Pricewaterhouse. And my first uh, job in Minnesota, what brought me to Minnesota, was a job at a, a large insurance company um, as part of their corporate quality department. And so our whole, our whole purpose was to improve process, improve systems, improve how the organization was run. Uh, and that's where I was first exposed to, to Baldur's. This is back in the mid '90s, and so um, and once I saw that framework, once I started seeing how things could work in a far more optimized way, it's hard to undo that thinking. Once you start to see how systems should fit together and how they can always be improved, everything can be improved, right? Um, so I just it, I naturally gravitated to it, and my whole career has been built around it. Okay, so you keep mentioning Baldwin, and I haven't asked you to define it yet. I'm going to give a bit of my background, and then I'm going to ask you to elaborate. So in the 1990s, I was one of those who was very much interested in what was then called total quality improvement, total quality TQM, total quality movement was it, and then became TQI, and then became continuous improvement. And I've been into that ever since, even though as far as I knew, I haven't been around anybody who was really into it. And then I found your article. <laughs> Very said, good. Oh, it's still alive. It's still Kindred here. Spirits. Okay. And that's, that's right. when I decided to invite you. It was that and the title of your uh, your article, which I'll say in a minute. Okay, so for those of you who are familiar with Baldwin, you'll know that they're. I'll ask, no, I'll ask you to say it. Please connect Baldwin with continuous improvement. You bet. All right. So this will be a little history lesson for those of your listeners that don't know anything about Baldridge. Uh, first of all, Malcolm Baldridge was the Secretary of Commerce under Ronald Reagan, President Reagan. 
and a big advocate for business. He was really supportive of um, improving business, making the United States more competitive. And this was a time in the 80s when uh, we were losing our edge, quite honestly, to Japan and Western Europe and so forth. And um, the, the whole Baldridge effort started when um, NBC ran a white paper in the early 80s called If Japan Can, Why Can't We? And what, what this white, what this, I think it was like 60 minutes, they did it like a weekly thing on the, on the air. And what this white paper edition was really focused on is how Japanese businesses were just running differently than American businesses. They, yeah, they focused on people a lot more and they focused on culture and they focused on process and they focused on the customer. And, and they, they actually were focusing on everything that a lot of the quality gurus, those that you mentioned that were involved with the TQM movement, like W. Edwards Deming and, and Duran and some of the others, what they had been lecturing American businesses about for decades, and we weren't really paying attention. And so um, the Baldridge program was created in 1987 by Act of Congress, U.S. Congress. And it now sits in a uh, federal agency. It's in the Department of Commerce in the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And it's, it's a program really to advance the principles of excellence, of the principles of continuous improvement through all uh, facets of our economy, businesses and schools and healthcare and so forth. And, and uh, what it is, is a framework. It's, a, it's an evidence-based, non-prescriptive framework of seven categories. And I'll rattle off the categories because your listeners will probably be interested. Yes. Here they go. So it's, it's leadership, strategy, customer, measurement, information, and knowledge management, workforce, and operations. So those six categories are process categories. And then category seven are results. It's the, it's the outcomes that any organization or any community is trying to achieve. And what's really cool about the Baldur's framework is there are about 270 or 280 questions that sit under those seven categories. And each one of the questions represents a process of how an organization systematically does something, how it systematically communicates or engages with its customers or selects and recruits and develops its people, its workforce, or how it uses measures and data to make decisions. Um, but the questions are non-prescriptive. They don't tell you how to do it, but they do represent best practice. These questions change every two years and they change by studying the highest performing organizations in the nation and figuring out what they're doing to, yeah, to achieve these high levels of performance. And so those become future years questions. So it has become a validated set of best practices that any organization can gauge their own performance against. Okay, so off the top of your head, to the best of your memory, I know I didn't ask you to prepare for this, give one leadership question in the leadership category. Well, there, there are probably two or three dozen leadership questions, but okay. some of the ones, yeah, on the top of my head, how, how do you uh, deploy vision and values throughout the organization? How wow. do you communicate? How do you ensure effective two-way communication? There's another one. You just wanted one. I could go on. Okay. So organizations fill out this long, lengthy, mm -hmm. involved questionnaire that requires them to analyze every facet of their operations and submit it to the Baldwin and get evaluated. And then what happens? That's exactly right. So there's actually a few different input mechanisms. You can, you can answer all 270 questions 
or there's shortcuts. My program in Minnesota, and I, I mentioned, I think there's 29 of us doing this across the country, or the National Baldrige Program itself, there's shortcuts. So you can answer a subset of the questions or a few of them to just get started. But yeah, you answer the questions and it's fascinating to answer the questions as a leadership team, because oftentimes you'd never ask the questions, right? And so you might have very different answers about how things really work at the organization. So just by asking the questions and forming consensus about how things really are done, there's real power in the self-discovery that takes place. So the first step is to answer the questions, to really form you know, consensus about how things are done, document them, get it down on paper, and then you submit them to a third-party organization like my nonprofit or the National Baldrige Program or one of the others. There's one in Texas too. G and I mentioned that. Oh. Um, and then we, yeah, we have we have trained volunteers. We call them evaluators uh, that are form they they form teams and then they follow a pretty systematic uh, approach to evaluate what was given to us um, from an independent review to a consensus review to eventually a site visit and then a feedback report that's really intended to help leaders identify what to improve and, and focus on the right things that'll really be powerful for, for their for their uh, constituents. So it's a blueprint. It is. It absolutely is. It's a blueprint and it's it's a diagnostic. I almost, so oftentimes I use the metaphor that it's the annual physical for your business, for your organization. Because it tells you, like you go to the doctor every year or two and say, hey, this is this is looking good. This isn't looking so good. It's the same thing for your organization. What's working well and what might you improve so that you have better outcomes? Okay, so I didn't mention uh, here, but I... I'm going to in my intro that I found you through this wonderful article called The Power of Why, How Asking the Right Questions Can Change the Future, uh, published in February 2021. And I'm going to put links, we're going to put links down below so people can find the article. But here's something in the from the article. Try this at your next staff meeting. Ask your team, what are your organizations or department or team strategic challenges? And you may find several different answers. And then I thought about that for leading consciously. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I will bet that everybody who's working with us, part of our team, will give different answers to this very basic fundamental question. So Sometime over the next month, we're going to have a meeting gonna have a to get alignment on this one yeah. question. Yes. Well, and I think that's some of the power of these questions, Gene, is that and some of them are very simple. Um, some of the Baldur's questions are very simple. Tell us about um, your customer base and um, your, your market segments that you're serving and what are their needs. Hopefully, a business knows what those are. And if you don't, you probably should ask. But some of them are very powerful and have never been asked before, like, what are the strategic challenges we face? That's the question you pick. And if you go around the room and ask eight people, they may have eight very different perspectives about what's truly important to address uh, to, the, to the business. So earlier, you mentioned the seven uh, criteria. I forgot. Did you use the word criteria? Uh, seven categories, categories that Baldwin mm -hmm. uses. But when we talked, you mentioned that they've now added Equity, yeah. diversion, and inclusion. Did they add it as a subset of one of these? Is it a new category? Talk to us about how yeah. Baldwin treats that. Yeah, you bet. And I'm glad you raised that question. It's actually been in the framework for a number of years, but it's only been, I think, it's only was in category five, which is the workforce category for a number of uh -huh. years of, of how you, you know, recruit and select and, and train and develop your people, which is an appropriate place for it to be. 
But this last iteration of the Baldrige framework, the 2021-22 version, really emphasizes the concept of equity inclusion pretty much throughout the framework. So it's not just in category five now, but it's in category one of how leaders embrace equity and inclusion within their leadership system. It's in uh, category three, which is customer of how um, um, fair trade concepts are built into the processes and systems of how you interact with customers in the marketplace. It's in, it's in a couple of other places too. Um, I want to say it's in um, also in leadership into the governance system of how your board represents the diversity of your constituents. So it's actually throughout the whole framework now, uh, which earlier I mentioned, I think um, that inequities are hardwired into the system. I think it's the attempt of the Baldridge framework to hardwire equities into the system so that leaders and professionals are far more thoughtful of how, how they are uh, inclusive and equitable across the whole system that they're managing. So listening to you, I'm thinking of these organizational clients that we have and people that I know in organizations who are saying, am I doing it right? What should I be doing? And what you're telling me is the Baldwin uh, criteria have actual questions for you to ask yourself to see if you're on target in this area. That's exactly right. Now, here's the key, though. Uh, there's no there's no answers. There's no companion teacher guide to this set of questions. So they are powerful questions, but you have to figure out what the answers are yourself as a leadership team. Uh, and so, but the beauty of this is, um, if I can take a quick sidebar, can I have 20, yeah, 30 please. seconds? Oh, yeah. Um, for each of the questions, and I mentioned there's around 270 of them, we encourage our leaders to think about four different dimensions of answers. So there's kind of a hierarchy to these questions. So do you have a process? Does your organization systematically do whatever the question's asking about? Um, in the case of leadership, do you have an effective way to have two-way communication? Uh, or in the, in, uh, the customer sector, do you, how do you systematically build relationships with your customers? So there are a series of steps you can and should go through to satisfy the question. that We call that approach. The second level is deployment. So it's not just having a process, it's to what extent have you deployed it or implemented it throughout the organization? Yes. So you might have, yeah, you might have a good approach, but it's only done in pockets of the organization. So you have, you have opportunities to spread that approach you know, consistently across the organization. So deployment's the second level. The third is learning. And learning is defined as a systematic evaluation and improvement cycle. So it's not just having a process and deploying it throughout the organization. <laughs> Yeah, this is the TQM stuff that comes back from years ago, right? Are you right. actually improving it uh, using data, hopefully? So is the process worth anything? Is it is it generating the results it's intended to generate? Or if not, how do you improve the process to you know continue to make it better over time? And so that's where the answer guide starts to present itself. You know, you start to learn through that process. Is it actually developing the right outcomes that we're trying to achieve? And if not, how do we how do we improve it and change it? And the fourth one is alignment and alignment and integration. So, and that's really how consistent and how connected that process is to everything else in the system. So this is where you're using input from your customers to inform what products you're you're uh, you're offering. Input from your your employees, your people to inform what uh, benefits and policies and, and uh, offerings you give to your people. So it's the connections of the dots between those seven categories. My heart is literally beating fast. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I am, this is, 
you know, people are struggling and trying mm-hmm. to reinvent the wheel and trying to figure it out and to have a framework that's useful that they can use to get where they want to go and that they can tailor to their own organization. Yes. I think that's just incredibly exciting. It is. So, so do you have these four things written down somewhere? Is that your four approaches? Could you? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, it's it's approach, deployment, learning, and integration, but I can send information. So if you want to include a link on that too, people have access to it. That would be lovely. You bet. If we can get that. Okay. So now I want to go from those uh, that this framework that you've laid out to your article, The Power of Why, How Asking the Right Questions Can Change the Future. So I'm imagining people say, well, if they don't tell us what to do, what good is that? I mean, I'm not looking for more questions. I have my own set of questions. What I'm looking for are the right answers. Right. How would you respond to that? That's a great, well, that's a great question too. (laughs) That's a great question too. Um, You know, I, I think in today's highly complex world, there, there might not be right answers. You know, it, the, the, the environment changes so rapidly. Factors are, are moving on us um, so quickly. And so it's, it's degrees of rightness. And I think, I think profound knowledge really is trying to ask the question multiple times over and over and over so that you're, you're dialing in on what might be a better answer, maybe not a perfect answer. Um, but until, if you stop asking the questions and if you stop trying to improve performance of anything, of your, of your organization, of your team, of your process, then you're, you're almost de facto going backwards because everything else is moving so quickly around you that the answers you gave last month, last year, last decade are not going to satisfy today's requirements for, for almost anything. So I, I think in seeking answers, seeking understanding, continuing to ask the questions and reflect on what is and what is not you get better over time. And that's really the goal of this, of the Baldrige framework. And really, I think of humans in general is to keep asking the question, why is something the way it is? Or, or why it, what, why is, what's going on over here? And just keep asking. And I think that, I think um, my belief is you'll gain knowledge, you'll, you'll gain understanding, you'll have the ability to improve whatever it is you're trying to improve. Okay, so some people are gonna laugh at what I'm about to say now. I get deemed frequently for asking too many questions. How? I'm laughing. I don't know if anybody else is laughing, but I'm chuckling. (laughs) (laughs) I I promise you. I promise you people are going to laugh at saying that. They're going to not. Yeah, she asked too many questions. It started off with my uh, children, nieces, daughters, Mm -hmm. all that. You ask mom, you ask too many questions. So so this obviously is part of why I was so excited to see your article. What do you do with somebody like me who really does want to know? Is there an art to asking questions so you don't get dinged? Mm. Ooh. Well, I'm not an expert on question asking. I'll, I'll start with that. You're probably more expert than I am. Given, given your experience, I, I think, I think that I think the asker, the inquirer, uh, needs to really want to hear the answer. So, uh, asking a question that you're really interested in learning the answer to is probably the first step. 
and, and asking an open-ended question is certainly more powerful than a, a closed-ended question where it's yes or no or, or some more discrete answer. So something that would actually really elicit a more interesting answer is, is probably going to get a better response from whoever you're asking it of. Um, those, those two things come to mind immediately. And then, and then take the time to listen. I, I mean, just in this conversation, I, you're listening. I can tell you're taking notes. You're, you're nodding your head. I mean, those are all very subtle techniques to let the, the other person know that, you know, there's meaning in whatever I'm saying between questioner and, and answerer. So why do some people, if they, they will ask a question and then they sit and look impassively at you? Yeah. I mean, is that learning? Is that, what, what, what is that? I, well, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm no psychologist. I'm not sure. I, I, you know, I think, I suspect um, we're all just so busy these days and there's so much going on and there's so much mm. noise in the world and maybe people are impatient or maybe they think they already know the answer or whatever it is. I, I think there's a lot of reasons why people aren't interested in answers anymore. They, they, they think they know the answer so much. And, and I don't think that's healthy. I, I don't think it's healthy for organizations or communities or families or, or just society in general. Okay. So you said they aren't interested anymore. So one of the things that other people I know get dinged for is not asking questions, not yeah. being curious. What stops people from asking questions? You know, I, I that was I, that's a great question too. And I, I I wrote this in the article that you've referenced, and I'm not sure either because I'm not a social sociologist, or I already said I'm not a psychologist. I'm not sure what I am other other than a TQM guy. But uh, I think over time, you know, kids are naturally inquisitive. They ask questions all the time, almost to a fault. You know, why is the sky blue and why is green, the grass green and why is this and why is that? But I, I think somewhere along the way uh, that erodes, we, we kind of beat it out of them. The educational system uh, rewards knowing answers more than it does asking the right questions. Uh, parents or other, you know, adult figures um, don't reward question asking at some point in life. They, they, it's just too tiring or I'm bored with it or you're wasting my time. Or maybe I kind of mentioned that we all kind of get set in our ways. And I don't know if it's a function of age or, or, or what, but um, we all form more worldviews. And so somewhere along the way, we stop asking as many questions and start believing we know what the answers are. And that, that does introduce bias and prejudice and all sorts of hardened ways, which I know is the core of a lot of your work. And, and yes, so I, don't, sure. I don't know what the reason, I don't know what the reasons are, Gene, but I think it's, it's a real shame that we all lose our inquisitive ways over, over time. In this field, this, this pitfall of racial and social justice, people are terrified to ask yeah. a bloody question. I know. You know, know, why did you say this? If I ask, if I use this word, is that offensive? What's the difference between colored people and people of color? I mean, people are thinking this, but afraid to voice it. That's right. That's right. And I think we have to have the courage to, to get back to that as, in, as leaders, as professionals, as humans. I think we have to be comfortable in asking the questions that we want to hear. We want to know the answers to and being so, safe. Yeah, go ahead. How can leaders set up a dynamic where questions, question asking uh, is okay? Yeah, I, 
I think you've just given the answer in your question. I, I, my belief is that it, in an organizational setting, it comes down to leaders, it comes down to leadership and leaders, leaders own the culture or at least own help to shape the culture of an organization, whether or not it's inclusive, whether or not it's, um, you know, open, uh, um, it helps shape and articulate the core values of what's truly important in terms of behavior and beliefs of an organization. And so it starts with leaders to, to create an environment where those conversations can take place, where people can ask questions, where they can show courage without fear of any retribution or whatever the answers are, but create a space where it's safe to ask questions of your teammates or those you work with or alongside of, of what, what you want to know. I don't think it happens far, far enough. I really don't because we're too, we're too busy making widgets and too busy doing whatever the company's doing to, to take time really to reflect on these important questions as they relate to us as people and uh, teammates to, to form relationships that build trust over time. It just breaks my heart. No. I keep thinking what people want an, envi- an organizational environment where they can be free to learn, where they can be contribute, where they can be respected for who they are. And question asking is part of that. Learning Mm -hmm. together is part of that. And yet then they get the opportunity and say nothing. Yeah. Or are afraid. Exactly. And it it is a shame. Um, But but I'll tell you where, and I know you've seen this in, in your career and the organizations you've coached. When you see it work, you can see the, the other side too. It, when, you see, when you see leaders that have been really intentional in creating spaces where these conversations can take place, those organizations usually are thriving. Um, the, yes. They're healthier work, workforce and the, the team culture is stronger and people trust each other. And um, so it, it, unfortunately, not enough organizations are, are doing that, but you, it can be done. And it's really refreshing when you do see it. So just on your personal opinion, is it possible for someone who's not, because when you say leader, mm. everybody's going to think of the top head honcho, right? Yeah. But let's come down. I'm now at some middle level. What can I do? Because mm-hmm. I hear so many middles saying, well, I can't do anything because head honcho is not doing anything. Yeah. Well, my simple answer is you lead from where you are. I mean, really, and yes, it would be, it's completely ideal if it starts at the top and and the culture is created there in the entire enterprise, the whole organization matches, you know, the the values that that you want. But if, if you manage a team or a project or a small group, create the environment within that team or project or group to allow inclusiveness and openness to take place. You still have to deal with the, the noise above you, perhaps, but uh, in your space, you'll make progress. You absolutely will make prog- progress with your team. And then people might take notice. What's going on over here? Why, are, why, <laughs> why do they seem to be having a better time or producing better results? Well, then maybe you've started to, the question now is starting to ooze to other parts of the organization. So you ah, can spread, yes. it from, spread it from the middle. Yeah, I strongly endorsed, and it's... Uh, been is ver- verified through a lot of research that emotions are contagious. You are. And so if somebody sees some good stuff happening over here, they're going to say, well, I want some good stuff over here also. How did y'all get your good stuff? Absolutely. And, and, they, and they want it to spread. That's right. That's right. So might as well spread the good stuff, not the bad stuff. Okay. So 
What? You've alluded to some of the criteria for a good question. You've said ask open-ended questions, mm -hmm. genuinely be curious about the answer. Can you offhand think of an example of a bad question? Let's get real concrete here. Ugh. A bad question and then reframe it into a good question. Um, well, a simple one that comes to mind in a workplace, you ask, why did you do it that way? Which implies it was the wrong way, right? And you've, you've introduced bias and judgment into how you ask the question to just reframe it. Um, I'm trying to think of a better way to say it. Um, tell me more about why, why, why you did X, Y, and Z or something like that. Um, I'm not reframing the question really well, but it, the, the the first example was a negatively a negative tone uh, implying that there it was the wrong way but the second one's far more open-ended yeah i asked someone who's working with us on that person on our team i asked her uh tell me the process of she was there's a process to get uh where something was posted on facebook so i said tell me the process and it was good so mm -hmm. I said, this is all by Slack, you know, emails and Slack and yeah. all of that. You, you, you're going to run into all these issues of people reading meaning into what you say. So I said, tell me how, the, tell me the process of how it happened that she did that. How did it go from you to her? And she said, well, you approved it. And I thought, okay. Yeah, but I'm asking you about the process. I didn't get it first, right? Oh, you can hear, I bet you hear it now, right? Yeah, yeah. You hear what she was thinking, but I'm thinking, yeah, but that's not, I'm asking, what was the process? How did it go from the mm -hmm. idea to you, to Valentina, who does our post? How did this happen? And then finally I got it and I said, yes, great idea. I'm so glad you did it. I'm so glad it, it happened. I just want to understand yeah. how it went from here. Your idea, did you read it first? Did you post mm -hmm. it? What happened? Mm -hmm. And so implicit in that is beginning with some kind of statement of approval. This is not a gotcha question. Yes. I am literally curious about this phenomenon. Well, and maybe that's the better way. If I had a better answer to your initial question, maybe that's the better way. I'm just want to learn. I'm curious about this. You know, setting it, setting up your question with a little qualifier at the beginning. I'm not here to get you. I just want to learn more. How does this thing work? You know, then then you've opened it up. The the person that receives the question is like, oh, okay, just wants to know how this works. It goes like this, this, and this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, language is so important. I think that, that, that you're illustrating something really important here and, um, and just being deliberate and really thoughtful about how we set up questions so that, that we don't put the other person in the wrong mindset, the wrong perspective or thinking there's a hidden agenda or I might say something wrong. It, it's just creating, it's, it's again, creating that space where uh, you can have a conversation without any um, negative implications. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I, I will tell I will tell you and ask you to comment on one of my pet peeve questions. Okay. So I'm explaining Malcolm Baldwin, for example. I'm de describing these four char 
uh, categories you just gave. And then the person says, I don't understand. Please explain it again. Mm-hmm. What I, 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 when my daughter was in the fifth grade, a fourth grade, a third grade, she said, the teacher wouldn't explain it to me. And I said, what did you ask the teacher? She said, I told her I didn't understand. I said, well, honey, she's not going to ever answer that question. She's already <laughs> explained it once. You have to say, I understand A, B, and C. Yes. I think I have a little, understand a little F. I'm not curious. I'm curious about D. Yes. Give, give her something to yes. work with rather than expecting her to start again from scratch. Yes. Now, yeah. have you observed that as a phenomenon? Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think there's real wisdom in your question here. And I really never thought about it this way. But the responsibility on the recipient of the question, and, if, um, and this is really the two-way communication. If, if, if the question's asked and received and the dialogue is flowing and that's all fine, that's one thing. But if there are parts that are still unclear, then it's the responsibility of the person you're asking to be really clear about what it is that they need help with. And that's, that's just the back and forth play of a dialogue. Uh, and I think back to how things break down where people just kind of give up. I, you know, I, I don't understand. They're not teaching me. It's their fault, not mine. And, and the whole communication breaks down rather than um, both owning the responsibility of effective communication. And I love your approach of if I don't understand D of A, B, D, A, B, C, D, E, F, then let's hone in on that. Yeah, and and making it clear. I got literally I got called down to the associate dean's office because a student stopped me after class and said, I didn't understand what you were saying. Could you explain it to me? And I'm thinking, we just had a three-hour class. I don't understand your question. Which part? (laughs) I I don't get your question. And I said, Well, why don't you think about it and whatever it was? Plus, I was late where I was going. So she went to the associate dean and said she wouldn't help me. Mm. And he said, I got a complaint. You wouldn't give independent uh, assistance. I said, she asked me what happened in the three hour class. She wanted me to give a 10 minute in 10 yeah. minutes. I yeah, couldn't it, do that. No, you and didn't I might have done a better job of asking her to mm-hmm. figure out what she's trying to ask. And so we cleared it up and I went back to her and I, that's when I gave her, I said, this is what I taught my daughter. I want you to yeah. understand how to ask a good question if you want an answer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those simple techniques though, I, I think just being real specific about what you do or don't understand, I think that's really important. And you, you know, the other thing I'm hearing you say that I, I think I might've referenced this in my article too, um, and this will be of no surprise to you. You'll probably get excited. Um, Questioning is a process too, and you should, yes. right? Yeah, yes. I mean, you should think about what you want to learn on the back end, and how do you set the question up? And and even uh, as a leader, there's a concept now that's very popular in healthcare, and it's it's spread to other industries. But it's called rounding. I, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, it. Or, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, the, maybe some of your your uh, listeners are. Rounding is really when physicians or nurses wander the halls and visit patients. They call it rounding, and they talk to patients. They talk to other staff members just to learn, to understand what's going on and what needs to be improved. And usually they have a set of questions that day that they're, they're really pursuing. 
And so that's where the questioning, the line of questioning becomes very systematic of what you want to hear that day. There might be specific things to a patient. but oh, how general, cool is that? Yeah, if you ask eight or 10 or 12 patients a certain question and start to get similar answers, then you then you corroborate the findings. But that's, a, that's an example of how questioning can be really systematic. You could do that in higher ed. So start off with a set of questions you want to ask, maybe choose one or two, do that, those this day, then have another set, and then slowly but surely work your way through all yeah. of the question set. Exactly. Yeah. And leader, think about uh, those of you that are listening here that manage teams or departments or whatever. You could do that within your team. As you wander the cubicles and the hallways, just have a couple, three questions that you're asking similar of all your team members, and you're starting to form um is starting to form a picture of what's going on in, in the in the team. Very informal, very informal, but it's a very effective way to ask questions. Uh -oh. What do you do if you're trying to ask, a, you want to ask a question across cultural backgrounds, but you're scared? You don't know if it's an appropriate question or not. Most people shut up and don't ask. But let's yeah. say the, let's say they're both on the team, Jim and Joe. Joe is trans. Jim is not. Jim wants to ask a question. Mm -hmm. And and they know each other, right? They're on the same and they team. They know each other. They're on the same team, but mm -hmm. they talk about work. They talk about widgets, mm -hmm. right? They don't yeah. talk personally. Is there a way? But if 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 they don't talk about this, uh, then Joe, who wants to ask Jim, Joe has a customer who is trans. And so he wants that information. I'm trying to set it up so it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And I've got to get the names. So is Jim? I, well, the trans let's make it. Let's make. Okay. Let's make it. a woman. <laughs> let's make it Joe and Joyce. Joe and Joyce. Okay. Joyce is trans. Got it. Joe wants to ask Joyce a question because Joe has a trans customer. Got it. So there's a real legitimate business need in asking this question. Yes. And is it known that Joyce is trans to yes. the public? Oh, yes. it is. Mm -hmm. And they and they know each other. Well, then I think I think the best advice I would give Joe is to ask the question and maybe preface the question that it's going to be personal and just get permission for maybe it's two questions. Ask permission of Joyce. Can I ask you a personal question about your gender identity? Uh, because I have a I have a follow-up question related to a customer. And if Joyce is comfortable with it, then she opens the door and, and you can have. A conversation. If not, then, then I don't know what you do then, but I wouldn't go into the controversial territory. But I think I think just being honest right up front that, hey, I, I'm going to ask a question here. It's a little out of the ordinary. It's not about making widgets, but um, are you okay with that? And she'll okay. invite you. Okay. So now I'm, I'm going to repeat back what you said. So set the stage. Mm -hmm. Let explain this is going to be out of the ordinary. This is going to be a personal question. There's a legitimate reason for me to ask. I, I need this information. Will you be comfortable? That's right. That's what I would do. I don't know. How, did I pass? You're the, you're the question expert. <laughs> yes, that's perfect. Uh, that's, how I, that's how I would do it. I think it's the most effective because you, it's back to creating that right environment. And even it's it's peer-to-peer, -peer, I think, in this case, not leader to- Yes, I was talking peer-to-peer. -peer. Yeah, but you're still creating the right environment. You're, you're asking for permission to go someplace. It's a little different, but- um, And then having the courage to ask the question. And if, if the recipient, Joyce, in this case, is comfortable, then she'll allow it. And if not, then you'll have to find a different tactic. 
And what I have seen is that when that dialogue happens, when that exchange happens, the whole organization prospers beyond anything the two of them could ever imagine because they now have a level of comfort with each other that's infectious. Yes. And that permeates the rest of the team. I, I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. Well, and the relationship of those two probably has grown as well because there's a, a mutual right. understanding that's forming. Yeah. And to your point, it's con- it's contagious. That, that that will only spread in a good way, I think, to the rest of the team. Yeah, that's terrific. Okay. How can people reach you? I'm glad you asked. You mentioned you want to find a program in Texas. There's actually programs covering all 50 states and many covering other countries in the world. Go to the website Baldridge Alliance. And Baldrige is with one D, by the way. It's B-A-L-D-R-I-G-E, baldrigealliance.org. And there's a U.S. map. So you can click on your state and find the program that serves you. And um, there's also, I didn't mention throughout this conversation, but there's a another program called Communities of Excellence, which you can also find on that website, that takes the Baldrige concepts into a community setting. So oh, where really? Yeah, where there's not one CEO or one boss in charge, but there's dozens or hundreds or thousands of them. Uh, and this is a concept that's been around now eight or 10 years. And there's 25 U.S. communities that are using this Baldrige framework in a community setting to solve community problems, address community needs, improve community outcomes related to health, education, economic vitality, and quality of life. So if, you're, if you want to learn more about the two, the power of questions and the power of this excellence framework within a community setting, you can, you can visit that website as well. Okay. So, Brian, I am so delighted for this conversation. I um, you probably can see on my face. I just love this stuff. And so I thank you so much for mm. being willing to give your time to us and to share your knowledge. I think what you're doing is tremendous. I, I'm going to be eager to find out what's similar to that here in Texas. Uh, and I thank you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I thank you for inviting me in. And I've just had an, an absolute uh, delightful experience in engaging with Eugene. And hopefully the people that listened to the conversation got something out of it. So thank you for the opportunity. All right. This was a fun conversation. Here are my takeaways. First, I am so delighted that the Malcolm Baldwich folks are now embedding equity, diversity, and inclusion throughout their criteria for helping organizations evaluate themselves. This is not a small change. They have seven boxes as criteria for evaluating organizations. DEI used to be a small segment under the box of workforce. Now it's embedded in leadership and in several other boxes. It's no longer something organizations should think about on the side. It's now considered mandatory for organizations to evaluate their effectiveness. Second, he emphasized the importance of asking questions. In this society, people wanna be thought of as someone who has the answers. As Brian is saying, it's equally important, if not more important, to have great questions. Being able to learn and grow through question asking is how we stay current. Our current knowledge can become obsolete. 
So being able to ask questions, to stay current, and to learn from others is essential for our growth. This was such a fun and invigorating conversation. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please check out our website to learn more about Pathfinders, and thank you for listening.